Hello and welcome to Sarah and Paul's Do Do Social, Social Work. You see, we're getting better at getting onto. We are definitely getting more aligned. <laughs> yes. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you very much. I always good. say that. I'm I know. Like, how uninteresting. I know. Is we that? should do, we should do actually do this properly. So I think you have to ask. People, no, no, but how are you really? You is that ask, what you mean? You have to ask people three times apparently before you get the right answer. So how are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, do, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. But how are you really? Uh, no one needs to. Know <laughs> <that>. <laughs> okay, well, I still didn't get the right answer. <laughs> no, I, I am. I'm generally good. I'm always pleased to be here. Shall we start off with the doo-doos and poo-poos as usual? Uh, oh. We have to, definitely. Go for it. Do you want to start? Okay. Sense of community. People coming together, sharing ideas, listening to one another for the same kind of outcome but different ways of achieving it. So it's been local elections. Yeah. And just taking part in that sense of community. People are all going together, not all going together to vote, but everyone... Yeah is voting yeah. will have their own differing views but we're all going for that sense of we want our community yeah. to Hopefully work and be, and be better what's your do i've been doing a lot of talking uh, as usual but um around uh, my research and what's been amazing about it is those ideas that i've come up with every time that i put my work out there i'm always always amazed by the insights that children can give to how we do social work and how we should be looking at policy and all of this kind of stuff. Child participation is the way to go. Fantastic. I'm telling you. Yeah. So what about you in terms of your poo-poo? I've written um, Chazza. Chazza Windsor Corrie. <laughs> Chazza Corrie. Chazza Corrie. People will know that I'm not a massive royalist. No. By any means. <laughs> by any means. However... I am looking forward to a three-day weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for Chazza. But, you know, it costs a lot of money and we know there's a lot of people out there that are um, struggling with the cost of living crisis. So, you know, we're all... It's... Oh, do you know what? I'm just so ambivalent about it all. I don't... I just... I'm not... I don't care. I just don't care. I don't... I'm not for, against... I just don't care. I just don't care. Is that bad? Apathetic. Apathetic, sorry. I'm not pathetic, <laughs> but apathetic. Yeah. A, a, a pathetic. I just don't care. So, Paul, what's your um, poo-poo? So, my poo-poo, you know, it's been, I don't know if you know this, but it's been my birth week. <laughs> I just want to say thank you to everyone that has um, extended their birthday felicitations to me over social media. I'm very, very grateful. But, I feel like there's a but coming. I don't know whether to say this but or not, but it's the art of giving, isn't it? So if you are giving, uh, saying happy birthday over social media, yes. I don't think you should be expecting any kind of... Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> However, when I did congratulate you on your birthday yeah. over social media, I absolutely expected a thanks from you. And I <sighs> thought you kind of waited quite a long time, over like 24 you know hours do? actually, Paul. I was a bit... <laughs> On edge. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start up something on Dragon's Den. Yeah. And it is going to be an automated thank people on social media for your birthday messages. Okay. Do you think, how much money would I make from that? Probably not very much. <laughs> okay. But best of luck. <laughs> okay. So without further ado, do. Yeah, nice. Let's talk about this uh, episode's subject, which is the... The chapter in, in the book is what I've written. But the book. <laughs> the book. It's so not Paul, the book, it's... A book. A book, yes. So, Paul, can you tell me about a book? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
The chapter's part of a book, and I'm going to be really humble here, which is unlike me, but it's uh, full of some really interesting people. So you've got Rebecca Pierre, uh, you've got Joe Hanley, you've got Caroline Willow from Article 39, you've got Featherstone Gupta, all these amazing, very learned people, and then you've got a chapter <laughs> by me in there about kinship care. And it's basically having a look at critical perspective, so critical social work, on policy. So where is policy going to go in the next few years, 10 years, 20 years time? Okay. And we're just kind of thinking about that and putting in a social, political, historical context. And it's on the back of the McAllister Review, basically. Okay. I guess, first of all, I just want to say, I think that's amazing, Paul, because those names that you were just saying about the people that have contributed to the book will be names that I'm familiar with and that maybe some listeners will be in terms of the, their research and the academic work yeah. and, and the world there. So to think that you're kind of alongside them in this book feels like pretty amazing, I would say. Also, very interesting book. And, yeah, it's going to um, be a great book. Really, really good book. So I've read most of it already and it is just astoundingly brilliant and it just kind of takes you out of the humdrum of where we're going, what we should be doing in terms of social work and social policy. Well, and, and, and also that thing of like, is it the opportunity to go, hang on, let's just press pause here because yeah. otherwise we're all going to get carried away down this thread, yeah. maybe off the back of the McAllister Review, which we talked about at the very early stages of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so let's just press pause and and take a look at what's really happening or the thoughts and drawing on other research here. So that's, you know, fantastic in terms of how that potentially then can drive what's going to happen next. Yeah. I think the important thing as well is that a lot of those voices weren't included in the McAllister review. We were kind of pushed to one side and it was kind of like anyone that's critical of McAllister review or frontline or not um, having enough children's rights in the McAllister Review or in terms of the evidence, they were very much sidelined throughout the whole McAllister Review. We talked about that as well, didn't we? Mm-hmm. How actual those critical voices, that that really, those knotty topics. <laughs> <laughs> but also the opportunity to really consult and involve people with that great big kind of expertise and knowledge base felt like that was really missing I, yeah. for me. Well, because we're all really busy. But it, they put out all of these kind of things saying, we want your information, we want your opinions okay. to practitioners. Yep. Hardly that many practitioners really replied because they're all so busy. Yeah. So, you know, retention, recruitment, which is the, one of the main problems. Which we'll be talking <laughs> about in a further, in a podcast to come exactly. at some point. But exactly. um, coming back to the book then, yeah. let's um, spend a bit of time talking about the chapter and the content and I know that you've kind of got some kind of intentions for the conversations that we're going to have today and the information that we're going to share with the listeners around your the, the chapter that you've written yeah. around kinship care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the the great things about having you talk about this is that but I've been doing these rounds in terms of interviewing and um, interviews and podcasts and things and talking to different people but it'd be really nice just to talk to you mm-hmm. because you're a good friend you can yeah. give me that kind critical kind of analysis of things but also I know that you were in practice as well yes well we and were in practice together in exactly the care, so we, we can always relate this back to practice as well and I think that's really really important there'll be 
a, mi- a gr- mixed group of people reading the book, no doubt, Paul. And yeah. so therefore thinking about practitioners who are in practice. Yeah. Let's keep this podcast kind of really relevant and kind of accessible and digestible for social workers. That's our, our whole goal, isn't it? <laughs> whole goal. That's our USP, isn't it, in terms of our podcast? Yes. What did you think of, of the chapter? You can go for it. Just go for it. Well, obviously, Paul, I'm going to say I think it was great. So I'm your best friend and I just always tell you what you want to hear so we stay yes, friends. Yes, you said you're my best friend. Okay, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed reading the chapter and I liked that it was um, recent mm. uh, re- research on kinship care and you were drawing in other research that's that's been done Yeah. over the years. What I really liked was you were looking at the kind of assumptions made of kinship care because I guess in practice those assumptions has has what's driven a lot of the my practice in the past yeah and then of course then the reality of that also doesn't always fit with those assumptions so that's what as I was reading the book that's kind of something that really stood out for me and I think the you know all of my work is I talk about it all the time I look at the values that children have that's that's the way that you get to understand people's perspectives is like drilling down into people's values that underlie and underpin everything that we do, whether that be from us choosing what, what, what we're going to wear, whether we're going to see someone again that's caused us harm or whatever, so mm-hmm. from small things to big things. We're always value-led, this kind of underlying kind of moral orientation. And we see that within the work. And in Kinship Care, O'Brien talked about this many, many years ago. And she talked about how actually Kinship Care, it really, really sings to our professional and personal values. That, that has an effect on the work that we do and the service we provide, but also for policymakers on how they, the direction of Kinship Care. So underlying assumptions are really, really important. And that's what my work will always drill down to those things. Fantastic. And so I guess the structure then for today... Should we think, should we go through those, the assumptions? Because that's kind of how your chapter is presented, yeah. isn't it? So the first one then, talk me through the first one and I will um, kind of, I've got some point thoughts on it. Before we go to the first one, yeah. I just want to make it really clear. We know worldwide social workers, governments are not giving enough support for families, children that are in kinship care. We know that worldwide. That is not an assumption. That is a fact. Okay. We need to do better. In fact, it's appalling that we're not doing better, that we're leaving these families without the support they need. The second underlying fact is that for many children, kinship care is the right type of family setup for them. But it depends on individual children in certain circumstances, all of these different things. We know that it is a valid permanent option for children. So that's the kind of foundation. Yes, absolutely. Because we've worked in this sector... We use the term term kinship care as though it's kind of really common language. And (laughs) for people that work within it, yes, it is. However, when I use the term outside of a social work context, I often get asked what kinship care means. Yeah, isn't it weird? So kinship care is when children remain within their family constellation. If they can't remain within their with their primary carers, so those are usually uh, birth parents. And I suppose in high-income countries and most middle-income countries, it's split into two things. So you have formal kinship care, which is usually a response to child protection, and that's when social services really get involved. And then you have informal kinship care, where there's not meant to be social services involved, how social work involved. You However... S- you said there's not meant to be. I see informal kinship care as when families haven't come into contact in a... With, in a statutory way, yeah. yet make arrangements for the child to be cared for extended family member, for example. And actually, that child, you know, social work 
workers aren't involved in the decision making or necessarily local authority isn't involved in in supporting either in many occasions. Um, the difficulty with informal kinship care here is that just because there's no social work intervention per se, well, where does that put us in terms of when they come to us for Section 17, you know, child and need money? Or where does that come to when we start thinking about special guardianship orders where local authority has no, the children are out, out of the care system, as it were, and the local authority has no responsibility, yet they do have responsibility. So is an SGO, is that formal, informal? It I just mean, gets very hazy. Really and when you quickly. say they do have responsibility, is that because they have a responsibility to every child, to ensure that every child... But also, a lot, uh, now it's becoming uh, law, it's still slightly discretionary, but every local authority should have a special guardianship order support plan. Yes. Um, a couple of things that stood out for me in terms of your yeah. first assumption. The first assumption is that it's better for the responsibility of care for children pe to be positioned within families, with the peer support, charity support, rather than with the state. So that's what we were just talking about yes. earlier in terms of informal, informal kinship care. Going back to the, my experience in practice is that we will have come into contact with family members caring for children where we then had to... So we went through the process of approving them as temporary foster carers under the Reg 24... 16 weeks allowance, yes. Yes. And then... There were other situations that families were experiencing where we weren't necessarily regulating them as a foster placement. And I guess I just wanted to ask, just kind of putting it out there, what the pros and cons for regulating a, a family placement as a regulated foster placement versus it being unregulated? Well, this is really interesting. And this is something that's rarely spoken about, actually. Because if we think about our practice, when we used to have families that really needed that extra support... Um, usually because there were really, really fractious, possibly even quite risky relationships within that family. Or the ch child had come from, you know, some really adverse kind of circumstances. We would think, right, well, there needs to be some kind of local authority statute there to protect this family, to make sure that we have input for this family. So we'd say, right, these they need to be regulated in terms of foster care. That placement needs to be regulated. Then these carers need to be regulated to foster care. So what do we do for these really these families that need the most support? We take them along to a fostering adoption panel. And what do they say? No. No. Not good Be enough. Not good enough because the reasons why you brought them for support are the reasons why we can't approve them. So then we go... Well, because, and I guess mm. that might not be the practice now because I know that things have been re-looked at in terms of like panels specifically for kinship, that, for yeah. kinship carers yeah. but there has definitely been our experience it previously and many others yeah what we know with kinship placements is that some of them can be much more complicated and that people do have for example some criminal offending in their history mm. or that actually they've got their own medical health reasons the dilemma there is saying but these are the children's family members yeah. and they're not coming forward as doing this as a profession. Yeah. They're doing this because they want to care for a child within their family. And I think that was always like a really big tension. Yeah. And in terms of the pros and cons of going through that, again, I'm just thinking of some of the families that I've worked with. Some families really welcomed that assessment process and they liked it because it really validated them doing all of the work that they're doing and all the skills that they needed to have in terms of caring and for a child. And well. that they do have, as well as actually 
appreciating that support and actually kinship carers themselves will have their own journeys and stories and that some of them have really valued having that social work interaction in a sense of saying hey I this has helped me kind of consolidate my own journey here as well Mm. this process and then there'll be other kinship carers who say I don't want an assessment I don't want you to ask me about my past history I don't want you to know about what Mm -hmm. my traumas might be because that's irrelevant to what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah why are you you asking me about my 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 mum and my dad and all of that kind of stuff well yeah and also people saying actually it's none of your business I'm looking after my grandchild it doesn't matter what relationship I was in when I was in my 20s I'm now in my 50s I don't want to talk about it yeah the unfortunate thing is that those families with those really complex needs and real complex support needs actually if they don't get approved sometimes as foster carers Mm -hmm. then the alternative because we will put forward that they are the best family to look after this child it will go to an SGO where there may not be support you know uh, not consistently across all local authorities there hasn't been absolutely but not. I guess if we're talking about SGOs you might just want to give a quick summary around what the SGO what what is an SGO Paul what does it mean so SGO is a special guardianship order it was really produced as an adoption light type thing so when kids were in foster care for a long time the idea was that they would have um, SGOs to secure that with the foster carers. In that sense of going, we've got a long-term relationship here, yeah, let's have an carers. exit yeah. of local authority statutory yes, care, yes. a special guardianship order. It was kind of for children that weren't perceived as going forward for adoption, for example, but yeah. it was seen as children that had long-term relationships with established foster carers or carers, yeah. and that this would give parental responsibility to that carer. And the birth parents as well. And the birth parents. Yeah, but so overriding is my overriding. understanding. And then it was kind of co-opted, but... Uh, but in terms of kinship care because it's like oh well, that really fits into what we're doing in kinship care so the child is with these carers and they the parents still retain some parental rights and responsibilities so it's kind of taken in for that one of the things i uh, noted when i was reading your chapter quite early on i think it was under the first assumption that i wanted to ask you about yeah so the first assumption which was it's better for the responsibility and care for children to be within remain within families peer support charity support rather than with the state yes and what you had noted was that there's a difference in that children from ethnic minoritized families yeah. and communities yeah. there was a higher ratio of them in, in informal kinship placements compared yeah. to regulated so informal and, without support and usually informal with support and i wondered whether whether that's a kind of uh, indicative of families from cultural traditions of families of actually getting on and soaking up and solving family problems without state intervention yeah yeah so there's a little bit of that but there's also a little bit of institutionalized racism that's going on here as well okay Uh, we've only just started thinking about that really so there's research going on at the moment uh julie selwyn's doing it uh families in harmony are doing it there's also um a big study that's being done um, that's out for tender at the moment that looks at different experiences of marginalised uh, families in kinship care. Um, and possibly my next project is looking at that as well. But what we do know is that you're right, there's disparities in terms of ethnicity. And I guess one of the solutions has been from the McAllister review is that we tend to say, right, we don't acknowledge that kinship care is in this kind of middle space between kind of private family responsibility and big public concern. And it's always bounding around in that big space. So what policymakers tend to do is they tend to need to say, right, it's either going to be a private thing where we actually just rely on these families and these communities 
who we know, by the way, are getting increasingly impoverished, cost of living crisis, all of these kind of things. Or we go the other way and say, right, it's just like fostering adoption. We're going to do it as fostering adoption. So it's always bouncing between one or the other. And actually what I say is that we need to go in the middle. And the difficulty starts happening when actually things like the McAllister Review Clubs start saying, right, we need a legal definition. We need to make sure that it goes on one side or the other, takes into account really broad circumstances that happen within kinship care. We shouldn't be doing that because it will lead to increments, menus of care in terms of what we do. And that doesn't take into consideration the th exact thing that you just talked about. There is links between ethnicity and poverty, institutionalized uh, racism, and also links between how families from different cultural backgrounds is just not working. And that's what I'm arguing within this chapter. Shall we move on to assumption two then? Yes. Assumption two was about kinship care. We need to start recognising it as a permanent, a valid permanence solution. So permanency, this whole idea um, of a child feeling and being secure within their family. Yeah. The assumption is we should recognise it as a valid permanent solution that's a direct alternative to non-kinship care and non-kinship adoption. Mm. Now, I'm suggesting, once again, that that assumption is just a little bit off. It sounds great, doesn't it? Mm. And it sounds like, yeah, no, absolutely, of course it is. But it's this comparison thing, I guess, that um, I have a real kind of issue with. Well, and I also noticed that, you know, we talk about the term legal permanence, which, and I've used that in practice as well around how it's really important to create legal permanence. It's really clear. So we know who's got parental responsibility. That child knows where they're going to live for the duration of their childhood, etc. But what we also know in practice is that even if you achieve legal permanence, that doesn't necessarily then play out for families <laughs> over the years either and it can create some challenges for people. One of the things that I was reflecting on in terms of my own practice, when I first started working within kinship care, the thresholds for assessing kinship carers was very much embedded in their ability to separate from their relationship with the birth parent to mm. prioritise the child. Mm. Now, of course, when there's clear safeguarding concerns, that's absolutely of necessary. Course, yes. We can't have people hanging around who've got sexual, pose a sexual risk, for example. No. However... But you, those cases are, are, are very, very small where there is... A, a small percentage compared yes. to the amount yes. of... To compared to yeah. the percentage of kinship care families. Yeah, because a lot of kinship care families, the reason why they're not in care is due to circumstances such as as substance misuse, domestic uh, violence uh, and mental health challenges. So I've noticed that real shift where, say, for example, grandparents or siblings had to go through a real process or a real dilemma of cutting off that relationship yeah, they awful. had yeah. with another adult in their family who they may have fulfilled a supportive role to to care for that child and the expectation is that that's what they would do and then as the years have gone by I've seen a real kind of shift and a bit of a grey area around of course we ask kinship carers to maintain contact for, on behalf of the child yeah. but now I think the statutory intervention accepts that families aren't as clear-cut as that and yeah. that's what you talked about in your chapter in that sense of like actually kinship care does allow birth parents to be kind of not too far away for that well child. It, they, those connections can happen if so if we start talking about connections rather than contact i think that's much more useful first yeah. of all yeah but those connections with different family members will always be around in kinship care whether it just be in terms of seeing your birth parents for example 
or just in terms of family resemblance or just in terms of you know what your grandma used to eat her pasta like that or you know all of those little conversations that really mean something that mean something that means that you will keep those connections it's not a case of this kind of separation that we used to think uh, happens in terms of adoption and fostering in the book that i'm writing yeah. i write a massive chapter in terms of permanence and the history of it and how it just doesn't match up to kinship care it, it it can't do kinship care again it's in this middle space and that's where we need to start working for rather than just trying to fit it into jam it into fostering adoption processes fostering adoption ideals of permanence and I guess I'm just thinking out loud in terms of the role of the family court yeah. in statutory social work and actually as many social workers experience is that the court requires certainty mm. in terms of making orders, needing evidence or clear analytical thinking and I understand that but when we're talking about kinship carers what you're also saying is actually we're trying to put that kind of square peg in a round hole yes, or the other absolutely. way round yeah. and it isn't really clear cut and there isn't one rule for all and it there is uncertainty mm. and people kind of we need to sit with that and this is where I depart from a lot of my kind of peers in terms of policy and research because I ultimately argue that what we're trying to do in terms of kinship care allowances being the same as fostering and adoption allowances trying to jam it into SGOs, which are originally for adoption, trying to jam it into all these systems. Even the small thing like asking for that kind of parity, mm. I'm not saying that kinship care shouldn't get the, the, the right amount of money, they definitely should, mm. but we need to move away and step away from it because very, very quickly what starts happening is that whilst doing these kind of comparisons or jamming it in, then further down the line, kinship carers may be held, expected to be held to similar responsibilities, social work monitoring, thresholds and different procedures. And, and that's not going to match the permanence needs of these children. Yes. Yeah, so we're going down this path too quickly without actually seeing what, it, what permanence means for children. Okay. And that sense of kind of creating more of a kind of fluid care arrangement, I think, is something that kind of came to mind. And I don't know if you actually wrote that. No, but that's good, yes. But... A kind of fluid care arrangement around kinship placements and that children, we talk about permanency, yeah. legal permanency, but actually children being placed within their families yeah. extended. Now, of course, you know, we want children to have a stable as much upbringing, but that may also include having a fluid care arrangement opposed to stranger foster care, for example, which... If we think about our, our, our work and our practice, we're given these forms based, again, on adoption and fostering forms, and we go and assess a household. We go and assess a person or a couple of people. It's very, very stuck to this kind of framework, heteronormative, quite Eurocentric, probably quite white framework yeah. of what a family should be. And actually... If you talk to the kids, what they're saying is one of the benefits of being in kinship care is that although, unfortunately, I don't have those secure two people that, or one person that I know is going to be there forever, one of the benefits for me is that the family as a whole is giving me permanence. The family as a whole is looking after me. Yeah. So that can mean it can happen in with multiple 
carers throughout our lives, multiple homes throughout our lives. Think about our own lives. Mm. How many different family members have been there in different ways throughout our lives? Well, interesting that you should say that, Paul, because just some of my own experiences, you know, I grew up with two parents that had separate households. So as a child, I managed to maintain those multiple households. And mm. and even within that, I also had kinship care experience, informal kinship care experience mm. with a grandparent when I was much younger. And then later in adolescence with an aunt who wasn't a kind of blood relation aunt, but was is an aunt in my eyes through extended family. And now as an adult, I don't feel at detriment to those experiences at all. I feel kind of really rich. I've got these different family bases that have all given me something pretty amazing and have yeah. made me given a sense of being wanted and a sense of belonging in all of them. So it's given me a real richness, I guess, that I wouldn't have experienced had I just been brought up in a real nuclear family environment. Yeah, yeah. And you take that with you in your practice, don't you? And yeah. you take that. That's why it's so important. Coming back to this whole thing, again, what I said at the very beginning, our own personal values, our own professional values has an impact on the work that we do, has an impact on how how we assessed how we make sure we support kinship families mm. because you have that insight into the world of the child yeah um which which would be really helpful so moving on to the third assumption which one what's the third assumption in your chapter paul assumption three oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's assumption three Sarah. fantastic <laughs> you're right moving Remind, on <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have read your chapter but yes. could you just remind me and and tell the listeners okay the i will so it's that children in kinship care are more likely than those in non-kinship state care such as fostering adoption okay we compare family settings and arrangements yeah in kinship care children in kinship care they're more likely to achieve a better outcomes regarding well-being safety and future as adults yeah so I mean, that all sounds about right to me. Because <laughs> that's what it was all my practice has been <laughs> underpinned by. <laughs> and, and I think that's really interesting because that's a well-rehearsed mantra of lots of different research, lots of different policymakers, is that not only is it going to save us money, mm -hmm. we always must remember that kinship care is always cheaper. Yeah. And believe me, policymakers will realise that. Local authorities realise well, that. Well, yes. Exactly. Service managers realise that. Also, they will say, well, outcomes will always be better. But that's not true. That is absolutely not true. Okay. Uh, that's unsubstantiated and it's unresolved debates. It's not true. I'm going to say it. Yeah, go on. I feel slightly challenged by Good. that. <laughs> Why, by that statement, does. Paul. I think everyone and, does. And I guess I'm on reflection that in my practice... Mm. We make that assumption, we do the work, we advocate for the support where possible, yep. we try and underpin that in law, for yep. example, the yep. SGO support plan and detail what support should be provided. Yep. And then the families go off and we carry on to the next family, the next family, the next family. Yep. I'm not around at the end of that. Yeah. to see what the outcomes are for the children when they get to well, 20 first of years all, old. The outcomes being adult-defined outcomes, the first point. Why? What matters approach with children? Asking children what the outcomes would be is, is a better, appro is which a better is approach. your research. Yes, exactly. Let's think about what we do know in terms of kinship care. So kinship care can provide, uh, allow children to maintain a kind of family history, identity, ethnic identity, cultural consistency that's not available in non-kinship care. That much is true. Kinship care arrangements are also more liable to pro promote kind of secure attachments and relationships between the child. 
and care of than other placements. That much is true. However, there's other variables in the mix there. Yes. And yes. we know that if we start considering things like prior relationships, the reasons why kids come into care as well. So a child might be going into these family relationships that has not had the same adverse effects as a child that's gone into fostering or adoption, for example. When we start talking about risks of financial insecurity, which we know is high in kinship care, when we talk about these favourable starting points, basically, they can lead to favourable outcomes. Mm -hmm, we know mm -hmm. that. So it's not as simple as saying kinship care is the cause of all of this great stuff. Mm. It's not that simple. It might be true that some bits of it are, mm. but we don't have the data yet. It's unsubstantiated evidence. So there's been no research. Well, but what I'm saying is there has been research. But what happens is that you look at correlations. You know, it's, it's one of my most favourite phrases in the world is that correlation is not the same as causality. It's a brilliant phrase, isn't it? <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm stupid. I'm going to get no. printed on my, <laughs> my T-shirt. Repeat, please. So if we look at correlations and we start saying, right, this child has got these outcomes... Um, and they've been in kinship care, that's not the same as saying that kinship care has caused these outcomes. Yes, because there's so many varying factors Correct. to good outcomes yes. so, for everybody. Yes, so correlation is not the same as causality. Not the same at all. We don't know the causes just because things correlate. The difficulty is, if we start saying, right, guess what, Mr Children's Minister... Misses, it might be a miss. miss. Might not even let's not even give them a title. <laughs> Why are we even doing that? So old fashioned. Sorry. So, hey, children's minister. Hey, children's minister. Not only is it going to be cheaper, but there's going to be better outcomes. And if it's not based on really, really solid evidence, what happens if there's a big scandal? Because at the moment, we're all favouring kinship care. We will just go the other way. I'm a real advocate for kinship care. I don't think we should be bouncing from it's the best thing to the worst thing. Uh, thank you, because that's where I was really wanting to come in, because I was thinking, Paul, as you're talking, it sounds like you're saying, hey, put the put a pause on kinship care. But I know that that's not, no. that's not your stance. You are a real advocate for kinship yes. care. But what you're saying is kinship care, yes, proceed with caution, do more research, re get some real evidence. Yes, so here. that we can really find the ways to support these families rather than just having these kind of suppositions. And assumptions. About, and assumptions, yeah. I just want to add at this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul, as mm. you were drawing on all the prior research that's taken mm, place, mm, really valid, mm. that you also quoted yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone's got to. <laughs> Shuttleworth 2021, I thought, oh. And 2022. And is it fairly normal for people to quote themselves? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's well, it's fairly normal. <laughs> fairly, fairly normal. Fairly, I, um, Shuttleworth, fairly normal, Shuttleworth 2023. <laughs> <laughs> I did have another question under assumption three. that research had noted that there might be a greater risk of neglect in, in kinship placements yeah. compared to fostering or adoption, for example. And I guess but that's because there's so much more statutory overview and intervention. Yet, in regards to... 75% of uh, families living in kinship care are living in financial hardship in the UK. Even in formal placements? Yeah. And how do we know that without the full data? Is that made on a, we actually, these are the families... So that's done on data on the 2011 census, so okay. it's, it is quite behind and all that kind of stuff, so it's kind of a rough estimate, but even if it's, <laughs> even if it's off by, you know, 10, 15%, it's still shocking yeah the trouble is that when we start talking about risk there aren't that many studies i've been trying to get different researchers and academics to come together 
Um, and we're doing that at the USAF at a conference later on, a bit where like. we are looking at risk and we are just tackling it head on because people are too scared to talk about it. We don't know enough about it, and we either kind of skirt around the issue or we kind of make wild assumptions. We need to really start looking at this. And a bit like the sense of community that I was talking about at the beginning of mm. bringing everyone together. Yeah. With a shared aim. Yeah let's talk about this and solve some problems yeah. that sounds like a real sense yeah. of community and it might be challenging but that's okay we need to we need to have challenges um in order to negotiate compromise and without compromise we can't have long-lasting change the last assumption is that by supporting kinship care better we'll reduce the number of children that are looked after i kind of want to agree like i mean well, we all agree. want to agree with it that's yes, the whole I point of this chapter <laughs> is that we all go yes that's right but actually taking a step back. Okay. Um, so unpick. this was, this was, let's unpick it. Yes. So looking at the McAllister review, if you look at the um, evidence at annex, which most people didn't do, but the, the, the bit at the end that had all the evidence of the McAllister review, the bit that geeky people like me really, really enjoy. Yes. We get really excited about all the research. The evidence actually had assumed mentioned 57 times. Okay, that's a lot. Yes. You shouldn't... Evidence isn't about assuming things. That's not how you make calculations. You can't do that. So what's important here is that, yes, while supporting kinship carers may actually lead to more kinship care placements being made, probably a lot of families that could be in kinship care arrangements, aren't in kinship care arrangements. I'm not suggesting that that's not true. But this whole idea, again, it's about correlation rather than causality, that increasing the number of kinship carers will reduce the number of black children. There is no basis of that. Black children being looked after children, looked after children. in statutory care. Yeah. There's no correlation. It's No, um, there is. There might be correlation. There's definitely, we don't know the causality of it. Okay. We don't know if those things are linked. I was just thinking um, around kind of my experience of being in court and writing reports where I haven't recommended um, family members to parent children with clear evidence of the risks and my analysis that they're not able to safeguard the child from those risks. Mm. I've received in more recent years, there will be a pushback from courts saying, actually, what support is the local authority going to be? put in place to enable this to happen good and that links and of course sometimes that may create a placement mm. and other, sometimes the risks are too high that it, it, it is deemed unsafe however what you were suggesting is that actually if more support is in place then more placements can be made because it will scaffold those families and increase the safety to the child so deprivation threshold potential carers, access to information support, uh, legal aid will affect the prevalence of kinship care. We do know that. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that that needs to be better addressed as well. However, it's spurious, really spurious to claim that increasing support to kinship carers will significantly increase the number of kinship care arrangements and reduce the number of children looked after in non-kinship out-of-home statutory placements. Mm. That Again, there's no, there's no data there unless you do lots of assumptions, unless you assume so there is no reliable data to, to support that claim. We need to be evidence-based. We need to be finding out 
what kinship care is as a family practice and it's in this in-between space where we know that there will be some type of state care as we all require state care throughout our lives in some form or another and that has to be tailored to the needs of children and families again talk to families talk to children and we need more research regarding specific outcomes for kinship care and we should never presume that the number of kinship care children in care can be significantly reduced by having this kind of untapped resource within communities and there's lots to talk about this untapped resource again untapped resource means what families living in financial hardship poverty communities or charities having to come in it, it blows my mind that, that that's that's the direction that we're going in i agree with what you're saying yeah. paul absolutely in terms of that we cannot be leaning on kinship carers with the expectation that they will take on the kind of and soak up the care of children without the proper proper facilitated support with the assumptions that it's going to be uh, the best for for the children yeah. and therefore for them without that correct support i mean i be, you know it's underpinned by keeping children within their family networks yeah. is the right thing to do well, in if, the right circumstances yes. with the right support yes. but in order to get the right support we need to make sure we're not doing a one rule for all and that we're listening to children and families yeah. and that more more research is needed in this area. Yeah. So in practice, what does this look like when we know that, and we know we're not going there today, of mm. course we're coming to the end, but the recruitment and retention of social workers is at an all-time high crisis. Mm. Huge vacancies, yeah. hard to retain, yeah. hard to recruit. High caseloads. High caseloads. Yeah. Um, coupled with cost of living crisis for social workers yeah how are we going to enable this additional work that's required well we have two options the first option is to start pushing away kinship care and pushing it back onto families so that we don't have to deal with it now that's the option that i think the direction of policy is going direction of practice is going and that's not the direction we should be going so do you think that was the undertone message from the McAllister review it's a cheaper alternative in terms of you know but dressed up as we're doing it for the children and the families it's better for them it's better for everyone exactly exactly and then when you know to top it off by saying oh and we're going to reduce the number of children in care and oh isn't it and all of that kind of stuff let's just get them away from social so social workers can deal with the real deal with the high threat deal with high change the thresholds yeah deal with child protection so that's one way that we can do it the other way this is shocking i don't know why anyone hasn't thought of it before is to better fund (laughs) (laughs) and i'm laughing because i know you're being facetious when you said that no one's thought of it before make sure that we have better working conditions so that we can go in and we can find out what the particular support needs, particular risks, particular family setups are, family scripts, attachment, how are they going to manage the in-betweens and the difficulties and the struggles of kinship care. We have more time to do that. Yep. And the way we do that is by having better resources, better working conditions. Paul, fantastic. Now, before we leave, yeah. tell me the name of the book again. <laughs> sure. I don't think I told you, actually. <laughs> the book is called The Future of Children's Care. Uh, it's edited by Robin Sen and Christian Care, and it's Critical Perspectives on Children's Services Reform. Out with Policy Press, July 2023. Fantastic. 
Thanks, Sarah. And thank you for reading my chapter as well. It means a lot to me. But thank you and good to see you again. And I recommend all the listeners definitely take the time to look out for that book and to read Paul's chapter. Oh, thanks. Where he quotes himself. <laughs> right then. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye.